standing over the ball. In some mysterious way, there are a number of alternative futures. There's a great shot, there's the greatest shot, there's terrible shots, you know, right? And all are possible. And welcome back. Welcome aboard another par train. Thank you, guys. Your host, Evan Singer, with my partner in crime, Matt Cermak, our other co-host. What's up, man? We just had quite a ride, didn't we? Are you feeling the vibes? Are you feeling the vibes right now? You can see my <laughs> smile right now. I'm fired up, okay? What we just did, that I was fun. fired up. What a dream. <laughs> yeah, it really was. If you're new, thanks for hopping aboard, guys. Our mission on the part train is to help frustrated golfers enjoy the ride again on and off the course because we believe you can learn to smile through bad golf. You can smile through anything. We interview PJ Torpros, best-selling authors like Stephen Pressfield today, who wrote Legend of Bagger Vance and 20 other best-selling books, um, CEOs, mental coaches, everyday golfers like you and me, and more to help make the hardest game in the world feel easy, help you get out of your own way, shoot your lowest scores, and finally enjoy the ride. Before we get to this episode with Stephen, uh, and trust me, we're going to want to get you to it quick because it's good. Quick word from our friends and sponsors, 18 Birdies, the number one GPS and swing analyzer app. In the world, it's got 30,000 plus five-star ratings. It's a 4.9 star uh, rating in the app store. And guys, if you aren't currently using 18 birdies, you literally will save strokes. It's guaranteed. Their premium users shave four shots off their handicap. And they know it because people track their handicaps and their stats on the app. The people that go premium and get the extra features on the course where you get to see... Yardages, front, back, middle, plays like yardage for elevation, takes in, in wind, temperature into play. It's like having a caddy in your pocket, Serm. How good is it? It's the best. It's the best. I mean, these guys are changing the game, Ev. This is the real deal. How about this community? How about our followers joining in, too? You want to talk about that for a second? Yeah, so we got 50 people so far in our group. We need to get that bumped up. We need more people joining our group. So we got a private group on the 18 Birdies app. And the cool thing about this group is you friend me. So go on 18 Birdies, download it using our link. The link is in the show notes. You can get a free trial through our link where you can get 14 days free. Try out the premium um, subscription. Make sure you like it. Trust me, you will. Friend me. So search Evan Singer on 18 Birdies. You'll see the little part train logo pop up as my profile pic. Friend me. I will add you to the group. And the great thing about the group is you guys are all listening to this show, but it's a way for us to engage and create more of a community around our golf performance, right? So you'll see when Matt and I are teeing off, you'll get to track our round. We're going to comment on each other's round competitions, giveaways, but you're only eligible for giveaways as a premium user. So make sure you do the free trial and get yourself a premium subscription. Use the link in our show notes, download 18 birdies. It's also linked in our bio on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at the par train. You're going to improve your game, and it's going to be fun to connect and see our scores. Okay, Stephen Pressfield, let me give you a little context here, sir. Stage uh, is set. Three or four years ago, we reached out to Stephen Pressfield, best-selling author of The Legend of Bagger Vance, one of my favorite books and movies, really inspired a lot of what this show is about, finding self-discovery and spiritual path through the game of golf. You know, at that time, the only interview he's really done at that time was Oprah. You know, and he barely even heard, accepted heard of Oprah's uh, invitation. Now, this is the power of what Stephen likes to say is fighting resistance and just keep going after the thing that you love doing. Every day, no matter how hard it is, sit down and do it. We've been doing that 
for years with the par train on with weekly podcasts and social media. And one day I get a notification that Steven Pressfield started following us on Instagram. That's right. And that was like, what <laughs> is this legit? Is this a fan account? No, it's him. Steven underscore Pressfield is his username on Instagram. Give him a follow if you don't already. And I email that same assistant. I said, Whoa, looks like Steven just followed us on, on Instagram. We would love to invite him back on the show. We'd love to have him. Steven emails me directly the next day, says, I would love to come on the show. Tell me when. And we just talked over an hour about lessons from Legend of Bagger Vance, turning inward, not having as much self-doubt, self-judgment. And Your authentic swing. Yeah, authentic swing, playing in the field. Basically, all the things we talk about, but in his way. And what a magical hour we just had. Yeah. Well, Ev, I mean, Legend Back Advance, the book, you know, I read it as a kid. My dad's like, you got to read this. You want to play great golf? You want to understand the game, the mental side of the game? So for anybody of our listeners who's not read the Legend Back Advance, you got to read it. I'd like to think many of you have seen the movie. Go watch the movie again. We do talk about the book versus the movie, his thoughts, his opinions. What a neat individual. What just a calming way about him. And to sit for an hour with somebody like him, what a treat, Ev. So definitely listen to the end. A lot of great lessons um, that can apply to your life, your work, and your golf game. As always, guys, thank you for listening. Thank you for subscribing. If we've added any value, and I'm sure Steven's about to add a lot of value for you today, give us a review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps us out. It helps support the movement, the train. It means a lot. And give us a follow at The Par Train on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok are probably the best three places. And no matter how much you doubt yourself, no matter how much you feel like you're lost or you lost your swing, what's the way that they get back to neutral, get back to their authentic swing, sir? Just enjoy the ride. Enjoy the ride, guys. Take care. It is my pleasure to say, I never thought I'd say this, but Stephen Pressfield, welcome aboard the train. We're happy to have you. <laughs> hey, it's great to be on the, on the train, Evan. Thanks, Matt. Thanks for hey, having Steven. me. Hey, Stephen. Great to have you. You know, I didn't think anything could beat the day that I saw you were following us on Instagram, but this day could be even more exciting. <laughs> so, Stephen, I wanted to start today. We've got a lot of different things we want to cover. You know, when you read Legend of Bagger Vance, which we told you off air was a huge inspiration for us, and I don't think this podcast would even exist today if it wasn't for reading that book years ago, and I just reread it again recently. Wow. Um, when you read Legend of Bagger Vance or even watch the movie for people that haven't read the book, I think obviously a huge theme is self-discovery, right? Something much larger than just hitting a good golf shot. I want to know to start today off, did you always believe golf to be a great catalyst for human development and growth? Or did your view change of golf after writing the book? That's a great question. I, I think I always believed that from the time I was you know, a 14-year-old caddy, even though I, I probably couldn't have articulated it then. But it was very clear to me when I first kind of fell into the game that this was, you know, not so much different from all other sports because all other sports also kind of are a portal into that other dimension. Sure. But that golf was really special in that way. But definitely writing the book deepened my understanding of of uh, why I thought that. It was more sort of an instinctive thing before. And afterwards, I actually had a, a philosophy that, uh, 
that I could articulate a little bit. Well, speaking of all your books, you know, I was spending a lot of time, Matt as well, reflecting as we were learning more and more about your background and been a fan for years, but preparing for today, I learned even more. And, you know, when I thought about all of your books and your work as a whole, I think the single thread that pulled everything through is our inner battles, the daily me versus me. How have your inner battles evolved? And do you fight them differently today than maybe you did, you know, 30 years ago? Ah, it's another great question. And I think you did. That is, that is the theme. You know, a lot of my sort of thinking about the inner battles is really, if you've read my book, The War of Art, and I know you have, um, really about the inner battles of a writer or of any kind of an artist that is trying to, uh, you know, to get to that other dimension, to get to that source of the good stuff that comes through you, which is the same as golf, right? Those great days when everything is working together, you know, trying to find, get to that area. And what's the, what's the key to that? So um, I think most of my thinking about what the inner battle is about has come out of my, my writings about, about, uh, about writing itself. Hmm. Um, but golf, as we'll get into today, I'm sure, is definitely uh, you know, a portal to that passage. I was a part of a big golfing family. And I read Legend of Edgar Vance, right? I think when it came out, because my dad said, to me when I was about 10 years old and I was starting, you know, 10, 11, those years as a golfer, like there's a mental side to this game. We wish we could play like a child forever, but as you get older, you know, doubts creep in, right? Who you are, what you need to be. So he said, you need to read Legend of Bagger Vance. I think is kind of a push to me to understand that side of the game. He, my dad was also very influenced by Golf of the Kingdom by Michael Murphy. Yeah. In, yeah. Written in 1971. So I was kind of curious there about, how your idea of Bagger Vance, where it came from um, and how it developed um, and, and how it relates to relationship with the game of golf. Well, Bagger Vance, as I know you know, Matt, is really the structure is borrowed from the Bhagavad Gita, the right. Hindu scripture. Hindu, yeah. And uh, so and in, that, in that story, in that... Which, I don't know if you can see it. I've got it right back here. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's a mentor-protege story. And then the protege is the great warrior Arjuna. And his mentor and his charioteer is Krishna, i.e. God in human form. And it's a, it takes place in an ancient time when a battle is about to take place. And uh, the warrior Arjuna, for whatever reasons decides that he doesn't want to fight anymore, and he lays down his weapons, his immortal bow, Gandiva, and refuses to fight. And uh, so Krishna, his charioteer, at that point, um, reads him the riot act and says, you know, stand up, you've got, you're obligated to fight, da-da-da-da-da. And he says, on this day, I'm going to teach you I'm going to give you spiritual instruction that's going to take you to the deepest levels of understanding of life. And uh, so um, that was the framework. I sort of stole that framework, and I yep. thought, what a great concept for a story. I'll, instead of uh, a troubled uh, warrior, I'll make him a troubled golf champion, and instead of a charioteer, I'll make the, his caddy. And um, so that was just a way for me to kind of steal the rest of the Bhagavad Gita 
and also put in my own stuff and and uh, do sort of what you guys are trying to do on the par train. You know, the the person you're instructing is the Arjuna character, the Ranulf Juna character, and you guys are God. We're <laughs> bagger. You guys are the charioteer <laughs> yeah. who, who's instructing it. So um, that was just a great... I'm a big believer in stealing, you know, for, mm -hmm. like stealing great stuff, like great structures. Like if you could steal the structure of Romeo and Juliet, why not? You know, make it a modern story like right. West Side Story did. So anyway, that's real quick, name. Matt, before you follow up, because I know you have a follow up <laughs> question. Stephen, I just want to say really quick to honor one of my best friends, Greg, who I know will be listening. He's another huge fan of your work. He's a writer, lives in Los Angeles as well. When anything amazing happens, he literally jokes to me. He says, we're God. <laughs> and that's exactly what you just said. So that's a little uh, shout out to Greg. He'll love that. No, it's great. Um, some of our listeners, talk about your relationship with the game of golf nowadays. Do you still play? If so, how is your game? What do you deal with mentally out on the golf course? Well, I, I'll just tell you another story. A friend of mine <laughs> who I grew up with in the game, we both started at 11 years old as caddies. His name is Phil Sandler. He lives in Richmond, Virginia now. And uh, when he first read The Legend of Bagger Vance, he said, wow, I didn't know that you really understood golf so deeply. And I said, well, you know, thanks. And he said, <laughs> then he said, boy, for someone who understands it so well, you should play a lot better than you play. <laughs> <laughs> so, the, so the answer is really over the last, I don't know, 20 years or so, I, I really don't play very much anymore. Um, not just because I'm working as a writer, you know, right. And, uh, you know, Evan, as you know, Los Angeles is a tough place to play. There's like, there's been like, I can think of five golf courses in the last couple of years that have been allowed to go to seed yeah. and just have gone away just cause they can't, you know, and I'm not a member of a private club or anything like that. So in any event, I really don't play very much. I play with my friend, Phil, like maybe a couple of times a year we'll meet, you know, in Arizona or something like that. Mm -hmm. So it's pretty much up mental. I, I, I play mentally, but uh, uh, I'm not really out on the golf course very much anymore. Have you had a moment, yeah. maybe when you were playing more, when you needed to reset? Maybe you, you know, got in your own way. You started to have doubt. And maybe Bagger whispered something in your ear. You ever hear him <laughs> when, you, when you would play? I wish I could say that, but, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, I have to say no. I mean, okay. I've tried many times. You know, it's, it's sort of summoned a bagger to tell me something, but, but, but no. I mean, only when, when those really great rounds happen, you know, they just happen. Yeah. And all of a sudden, you know, you don't know where it's coming from. Yeah. Well, maybe that can be a goal for today. You know, we can help maybe. you refine bagger. <laughs> maybe. I'll have to come down and take some training from you. <laughs> Steven, you've had quite, I mean, certainly a fascinating life with lots of different jobs outside of being a writer. You know, we've read you teaching tractor trailers, advertising, offshore oil rigs, we, 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 screenwriter. You've done a lot. Through your experiences as a writer and doing all these things, did it correlate to to golf to you do you see connections because we're always looking for parallels in because uh -huh. evan said this show is like we connected to life you know and how we can prepare for life and how we can prepare for golf. yeah definitely i mean you know the journey is the same for all of us and we're all trying to get to that other that that higher self that better self that we're in that we get that we stumble into every once in a while um so uh 
Yeah, I mean, indeed, all all of the all of the experience that you have across the board, I think, plays in together. Although, I'm a lot of I'm not really. I haven't had real moments when I say, "Oh, this is golf," but <laughs> golf to me is always sort of an underlying metaphor for mm. my whole life since I was a kid. You know, um, just like what you guys are talking about that. Um, it's a game where integrity is everything. It's a game where integrity is sort of the 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 uh, portal that you pass through to get to that higher plane, and um, it, it, you know it's such a mental game. It's all about getting out of your own way. It's all about st stopping yourself from screwing yourself up, which is what I talk about about writing in the War of Art and other books about the self sabotage that is is really the enemy within you know the that uh as a golfers we're our own worst enemies right it's all, the great days are when we get out of our own way yeah well i would love to unpack the concept of our authentic swing because obviously that's a huge thing a part of bagger vance and i think most golfers think their swing is flawed right i think when most golfers hear that, they would say, my swing sucks, right? So, but one thing we talk a lot about in the show, Stephen, is the act of trying to make our swing something else then creates interference when if we would let go and let our, quote, authentic swing come through, even though it may be flawed, I know Bobby Jones in the book talked about rhythm is synonymous with confidence for him. And even though he didn't have perfect positions, rhythm was his key through everything. So I just want to, I'm, I'm curious, in your mind, how do golfers find their authentic swing? I'd love to unpack that concept. Well, it, it is a really interesting concept that sort of stumbled out of, uh, on the page as I was, as I was writing Bagger Vance. And it's a kind of, it's like, um, there's a great psychologist, Karen Horney, who wrote a book called The Authentic Self. And that's really what it's about, you know, and the, the sort of the idea behind the authentic swing. Well, let me go back just to real swings. If you think about uh, somebody like Jim Furyk mm -hmm. or Fred Couples or Bubba Watson, who have really distinctive but sort of homemade swings, you can tell that they didn't arrive at that swing through being coached or taught or anything like that. Or Bobby Jones's swing, too. Um, even though they say he followed Stuart Maiden around uh, East Lake and still his swing was his own swing from the very start. And you can see when a young kid takes up golf, I'm sure you know this, Evan, that like if you look at Tiger Woods swing when he was like two years old, you see him on the Michael Douglas show mm -hmm. or whatever it was, yeah. it was it's the same swing he's swinging today, basically. Yeah. Right? <laughs> so I, I feel like just like we are born with a, a self, we're born with a personality. Like if you have three or four kids in a family, they're born with their own. They're already who they are by the, when they're, you know, two weeks old, right? Yeah. They're different from one another, and you can't really change them, right? Each one kind of comes into this planet, into this physical existence with their own self, their own personality. And the same thing is true with a swing, right? The first time Fred Couples, if we had film the first time Freddie Couples sw swung, I'm sure he had that same, he took it out on the outside, he dropped yeah. down the inside, and he did the same thing, he, or the same thing with Jim Furyk, you know? There was, there's stories about him that uh, 
I guess his dad was a golf pro, and uh, Jim Furyk started swinging with that crazy loop. And his dad kept trying to, you know, get him down to swinging real. And he just finally said to his dad one day, Dad, I just can't feel my swing. You know, this mm -hmm. new way you're trying to make me swing. And so he finally said, OK, go back to the what feels right to you. So I do think even though golfers might say, oh, my swing is flawed. And yes, it is. I'm sure they're all flawed. Yeah. But there's like a really good version of that flawed swing, mm -hmm. you know, if, if we can get to it. And so the idea of the authentic swing is that um, it's a metaphor for the authentic self. And that if we, that we come into this world as already a formed soul and a formed spirit and a formed personality. And our job on this planet is to find that and to become that and not allow outside influences, whether they're our parents or the school system or society in general, to try to mold us into some ideal version or some version that they think is the quote unquote right way to be mm -hmm. and just and uh, and of course there's a real parallel as a writer or as an artist trying to find their own voice right right when you find the great writers Hemingway or whoever they've that's their voice and you can really feel it you know they've they've cast aside any fake thing or any any wannabe any should be and 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 found who they what their voice really is and yeah. uh sorry i forgot to turn off the telephone here no it's all good uh, fine. hang on a second so that's that's the idea of the authentic swing that each one of us has us has a swing we're born with it and if we can find the best version of that swing that's who we are and i think the great days that we have on the golf course in some unknown way we do find that swing for that day, you know? Mm -hmm. Maybe we have one swing thought that actually works that one day, you know? I'm gonna take it back really, whatever, you know? Yeah. And, and, uh, and we see even our flawed swing really works once we, have, once we find our real flawed swing. That makes sense? Yeah, absolutely. It's funny, Stephen. Yeah. I don't think you would have ever probably followed us or Mark Wahlberg or all these people that we would have never thought followed us if we would have been trying to be any other account or podcast. Yes. There was definitely resistance early on saying, wow, all the people that have followed us for the regular golf jokes and things may get turned off when I'm talking about mindfulness and spirituality and becoming a better person, not just a better golfer. But you're right. What that did was it helped us lean into our authentic swing and people could feel that. And that's why probably people appreciate this show other than maybe another golf show. I think so. that's true. And I think, let me ask you, are you guys, do you guys feel like you're finding it more and more as you go along? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. The, when you sort of get off the track, if you'll forgive the train metaphor, <laughs> yeah, we love those. Understand it, <laughs> or you sense it right away and say, yeah. "Yeah, this isn't really our area here. Let's get back to what we really are talking about." Absolutely. So, Stephen, I, I think for some of our listeners, it's em embracing your instincts, trust who you are, and make a committed move. Like we talk about committed golf swing, honoring that commitment to who you are has a lot to do with the authentic swing. 
Absolutely. I mean, wasn't it? I mean, which it was somewhere, maybe the Ryder. What was it with Phil Mickelson recently where the PGA? Was it the PGA? Yeah, where they yeah. Said he wasn't making committed swings. You know? Yeah, right. And we had his brother on the show. Yourself, he talked all about it. Yeah, it's amazing when you hear that. You think like Bill Mickelson is yeah is not making committed. So how could that possibly be? You know? <laughs> yeah, but uh, yeah, there is. That's the that's the difference. The other thing I think uh, this is another thing I've thought for whatever it's worth. I'm sure all golfers think this. For a while, kind of my mantra when I was playing was commit to the pain. And what I meant by that, particularly putting, what I meant by that was the pain I know that's going to come when I choke on this three-foot putt, I have to embrace that before. You know, you know how you can get over a putt and you know you're going to miss it, right? So you sort of do that little mental thing where you say, well, it really doesn't mean that much to me if I miss this putt, you know? Mm-hmm. And then you're not committed to the shot and you do miss it, Right. But if you really commit to it then and you miss it, then it really hurts. You go, oh, God, I tried with all that. But that's the way to do it, to commit to the pain. I like yeah, that. I love that. And the other thing, too, it's not just the swing. It's the way you play, right? Uh, Steven, last week we had an 11-year-old, first time we had a kid on the show, an 11-year-old uh, four-time world idea. champion <laughs> on the show, okay? The kid has won like 10 tournaments each year. He's getting... He's better and better. Special. <laughs> and he talked, we, we asked him, describe your best round and describe your worst round. His best round was a 62 at 11 years old. Wow. Obviously, he said things like, I wasn't thinking much at all. The hole looked really big. And on his 85, <laughs> he talked about how he was playing with 12 and 13-year-olds who were hitting it farther than, than him and closer than him. And he started to try to be like them. And self-doubt came in, and it totally Uh, changed the energy and the way he played. So I think with the authentic swing, it also means don't necessarily feel like you have to hit a driver because your friend is, or you have to feel bad about hitting an 8-iron instead of a pitching wedge, right? It's honoring your strategy, your game, and that's a great way to commit. But I think that authentic swing deals with that stuff too. Yes, definitely. You've talked about obviously looking inward instead of outward for things. Um, and the power of what we have everything we need building on, you know, the authenticity. But I was curious if you have a story or a lesson for how going inward helped you achieve what you wanted externally. Well, let me let me ask you, Evan, when you say going inward, mm-hmm. what What's, what do you mean when you say that specifically? For me, I think that represents intuition. And to me, intuition is the best form of spirituality because it helps me live in a, uh, I wonder what's going to happen. It's easier for me to let things happen when I'm following my gut. And it's always led me to places that I never expected. So looking inward, a lot of times, not necessarily even saying things or doing things it actually a lot of times is getting quiet and taking the time to listen and then following like you mentioned at the beginning steven the vision of this show and this community now a lot of times has come from that inward Ah. feeling and um and intuition so that's how i think about it ah well, let me, all right, let me see if I can answer it. I'll answer it in, in, in writer's terms yeah. rather than in golfer's terms. Sure. 
I think that when you're writing any kind of a story, a novel or any, or even a nonfiction thing, you're um, you're always entering the unknown, and you're trying to um, you use your intuition. You're trying to use your instincts, and that's sort of the skill of of an artist, I think. Whether it's a dancer or a filmmaker or anything like that, is to sort of enter the to trust. You're going into a sort of an unknown place, and this is like with a keyboard. You're writing a scene, or you're creating a character, or you're or you're just trying to figure out the overall arc of a story. And you sort of ask yourself, what does this story want to be? Hmm. What does this character want to be? What does this scene want to be? And you, the writer, are sort of at the service of that. It's it's almost like uh, like an analogy I use sometimes. I hope I'm not getting into writing too much. No, it's okay. Kind of golf thing. No, but like if you're if you're writing a story, it's sort of like excavating the bones of a dinosaur. It's like this the the story is the dinosaur, and it's 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 already there. It exists. Right, it's in the ground. You've dug it. You've dug it partly up, and now little by little, with paintbrushes and little trowels, you're <laughs> exposing it. And you've kind of find, let's say, you find the jawbone, and it's you know, and you, and then you find the tail forty feet away on another side. In your mind, in your intuition, or whatever, you're trying. You're sort of imagining what the rest of that dinosaur is, and the unearthing of it, like a story is uh, following that intuition. You say, well, the spine's got to be over here and the left leg mm -hmm. has got to be over here. And then I'm sure in the real world of archeologists, you dig down where you thought the left leg was and there's nothing there. And the left leg is up by the head somewhere and you go, what the hell is this? You know, and suddenly you realize, oh, this was a pterodactyl and it crashed and it broke its back and the leg wound up next to, you know, something like that. So there's a kind of an unexpected element to that, you know, going within or that intuition. But it is, it is to me, it's about trust, just like trusting your swing or trusting your game or like that young kid that you had on, mm -hmm. you know, that uh, the hole looks really big and you just, you know, you're not thinking anymore. Um, it's getting from that head, that ego head, where you think you can control something to the bigger self head where you kind of are surrendering to something that's 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 going on that's greater than what you what you want to force it to be well, well steven you probably admit that writing can be very painful right and a struggle yeah, yeah. so always you talk <laughs> so you talked about the key you know the golf course is being committed to the pain but when was the moment for you that you became committed to the pain as a writer and that you knew, you surrendered to the pain and knew this was your journey. This is what I need to be in life. Um, I sort of, I, I, I wrote about this in The War of Art. It's kind of a, it's, I'll give you just the short version of it. But it was just, I had sort of run, been running away from writing for a long, long time. I had this typewriter, not not this one here, but it was one like, like that, that uh I carried with me for about seven years and I never touched it, you know? Mm. And 
finally one dark night in New York City many years ago, I just pulled this sucker out <laughs> and sat it down and tried to write something for, for and uh, at the end of like a couple of hours of just banging out just total crap, I, I stopped and I just, I, I felt good. I, so it wasn't pain at that point. It was, but it was a I release, thought, I would imagine. I'm sorry? It was a release. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And, uh, and I thought, okay, I'm, I'm going to be okay from now on. I can, I can use this thing. I can keep mm. doing it. But, the, but I knew the pain was going to be there nonstop. But I thought, okay, I, I'd rather deal with that pain than with the pain of running away from it forever mm. and forever. In other words, I'd rather face the pain of being authentic than the pain of mm. being inauthentic. I never thought about it till right now, Stephen, but writers and golfers are quite similar. Because Absolutely. no matter how good you are at it, no matter how many good scores or great books you've written, it's equally as painful every time. You never know when you're going to get tripped up. One day it can feel easy. The next day it could be impossible. I never thought about that until right now. Ah, well, I think it's absolutely true. And for any artist, you know, the, the sort of the going into the unknown, you go into the unknown and then you come back and you mm -hmm. put it down on paper. And like every swing, is the unknown, right? Yep. That moment, I mean, what's another thing that's kind of fascinating to me, and I sort of wrote about this in The Legend of Bagger Vance, is the inner world of the golfer as he or she is just about to take the club back, right? They're, they're rehearsing a swing, right? They're trying to find that feeling, right? Whatever it is, you know, the, the when Justin Thomas does the thing where he kind of takes the club back, you know, about three feet, and then he stops. Yeah, yeah a little then, waggle. You know, his form of a waggle or an address or whatever, that there's a sort of a rehearsal there, but it's also a surrender to the unknown. Because the unknown is that swing that they're going to take right then. You don't know what's going to happen, right? Like, uh, you know, the famous, in the 86 Masters, I'm going to really get into the weeds here, the shot that Seve Ballesteros hit on the 13th hole, where he hit the ball in the water. If you remember this, and uh, the, the, did I say the Masters? Yeah, the 86 yep. Masters, the Jack Nicholas one, that's a great one, where how could he do that, right? This great, great golfer, his shot that you and I could, you know, was so bad. But that was the unknown, right? That swing, you don't know what happened on that swing. Something, something went wrong. You know, the golfing yeah. gods went in there. Um, but it's such an interesting thing. What goes on inside the head and inside the body of the golfer before they, that instant before they take the club back? Because golf, as we all well, know, is a game that's played from a standing start, right? right? You're not running up the basketball court. You're not a wide receiver going flat out down the field. You're stock still, right, with your brain able to screw you up. And you've got that one moment when as soon as you start back, that's it, right? And how do you, what is that, that mindset is an amazing subject. I have For no answer to it. <laughs> <laughs> that's why we're talking today. We're trying to figure it out. <laughs> yeah. All right, guys, we're going to take a quick break, hear from one of our brand new sponsors, and then we'll get you right back to the show. You're not going to want to fast forward through this one. Trust me. So I was reflecting the other day, guys, okay? And I was thinking, wouldn't it be crazy 
if we all had our own caddies. Not just a caddy at the club you play at or whatever, but literally your own dedicated caddy playing with buddies wherever. Wouldn't it be sweet if we had a caddy that always gave us the perfect yardage for every shot? They factored in the wind. They factored in the elevation. They factored in how cold it was, right? A caddy that kept our stats, that told you that 90% of the time you missed the fairway to the right, right? So maybe that helps you with their alignment off the tee or maybe club selection, or a caddy that kept track of your scores, right? And told you where your handicap was trending. But also, more importantly, told you where your buddies were shooting that week too. You can kind of compete thanks to your caddy for keeping track of it. Maybe even a caddy who, you know, is great with on course, but also happens to be a swing instructor and can look at your swing and say, hey, you're getting a little too inside. Let's get you back on plane, right? 18 birdies is basically your own caddy in your pocket. I'm telling you, it's the number one GPS swing analyzer app in the world. And the app is an absolute game changer. They have data that says for premium users, and I'll get you a free trial as being a part train listener. Premium users on the 18 birdies app, on average, shave four shots off their handicap. Four. How crazy is that? I played with it the other day. And, you know, I don't hit the fairway every time. So the yardages, the plays like yardages, it was a game changer. But more importantly, guys, that's all great. Like your game's going to get better. It's guaranteed. It's in the data, right? And I know you guys care about getting better if you listen to this show. And we're working on your mental game. The par train for the mental game and 18 birdies app for on course and stat tracking and swing analyzing, it's pretty much a deadly combo, right? But I think the coolest part, And the big reason why I want you to download the 18 Birdies app is because I'm starting a private par train group. And look, we get DMs of your scorecards every week. So now it's all going to be in one place. It's going to say who's leading the week in best score, who's leading the week in this stat and this stat. And we got our own little leaderboard. And it's going to be super fun. Okay, so I'm going to get you a free trial of this app. And all you got to do is hit the show notes of this episode. And tap the link in those show notes, and that'll take you to download the app and join our group automatically. So it's super easy. It's going to improve your game. We don't just promote anything, right? This is the number one app in the world for this stuff. I come from tech, so I know a good app when I see it. And this is good stuff, guys. So join us on the 18 Birdies train. Enter your scores. Improve your game. Shave four shots off your handicap. And let's start challenging each other to get even better in 2022 thanks guys let's get back to the show i think on the great days your mind is blank yeah or it's close to blank it has some one simple thing that it's thinking about you know it's focused but relaxed right you can't it that funny balance focus and going in the unknown the other thing i wanted to get your take on today steven is the field And I just posted a clip, because I know so many people love the movie adaptation of your book, of Bagger telling Juna to look at Bobby Jones and his soft focus and him being able to choose all of the bad shots and getting in his own way, but letting his swing choose him. And it's funny, I have watched that or read it before big rounds or tournaments, oh, you know, really? that I've played in. And it's almost serves as like a help? meditation. <laughs> it did. And I didn't ah. expect this, but I posted it yesterday. And 
so many people were commenting. So many people saved it. I think like 500 people saved it. And I said, save this before you, you play the next time. And it seems to be a really great meditation for people. I'm just curious if you can talk a little bit about what the field means to you and, and how it first presented itself to you. Uh, that, that's a great question. I'm not going to really be able to answer it rightly because actually that whole concept, it, it, the full phrase is the field and the knower. Mm -hmm. And that comes straight out of the Bhagavad Gita. And uh, so I just sort of stole it and applied it to, to, to the golf course in my own crazy way. But I think that, so this is a deep Hindu concept from whatever, 5,000 years ago or something like that. And I think it's, I'm going to guess, because I don't really know, that it's a bit like quantum mechanics. Like they say that, if I'm understanding quantum mechanics correctly, that if you're watching with through the scope of some uh, subatomic reaction and studying it, that somehow the reaction doesn't happen unless there's somebody watching it. That there has there's there's a field, there's reality, but it it needs a knower. It needs a mind. Mm. Again, I don't really understand what that is, but but that the that. What makes reality is the union of the field and the knower. And that's something that comes straight out of the Bhagavad Gita. I don't really understand it. But I think that in golf, it's just what you're talking about, Evan, that as we're standing over the ball in some mysterious way, there, is, there are a number of alternative futures. There's a great shot. There's the greatest shot. There's terrible shots, you know, right? And all are possible. And we are the knower, and the field is that, that quantum, you know, whatever the hell it is, of all those alternative futures. And what we were just talking about is what is the mindset of the golfer in the moment before he or she takes the club back? That's kind of the knower. And the knower is trying to find something in the field. And I think it's a lot like a writer or any kind of an artist. Like I was talking about that dinosaur metaphor, it's like mm -hmm. the book we're working on or the dance we're trying to perform already exists in some other dimension in the field. And we sitting at the typewriter or sitting in this dance studio are trying to find that. And we find it with our intuition. We can't find it with, with our conscious mind, right? That's, mm -hmm. I think, why going blank is such a good thing because it takes this, the ego and the conscious mind out. But how to do that, it's so, to do it on demand, I don't know if anybody can do it. Maybe Tiger on his best days. Yeah. When we want to know what the golf shot's going to be or what it's going to look like or what we're going to shoot, creates tension. Yeah. A correlation back to writing, right? Where you know what, you, you know what, you have an idea of this story, but if you want it to be something so bad or it has to have a certain look or a result you're going to be full of tension right and then you're going to go in a direction you don't want to go to so we're always talking about how we kind of control tension because you can't it, it can't be ignored but how do you control it yeah how do you how what do you say <laughs> how do you control it <laughs> right and i guess for you Stephen, when you're uh, when you're writing you know and, and you have those bad days and you have those tension-filled moments what what do you do to, to bring you back to 
Um, I, I would say the same thing about intuition, about going into the unknown and trusting something and sort of letting go of your um, forcing anything to be what you think it is. You're, you're really just trying to find the bones of the dinosaur. You're trying to surrender to it. Now, one thing that's always been interesting to me that Jack Nicholas used to say, and I've never been able to, to do this myself or to grasp it, but maybe you guys have some insight. He would say when he would mentally rehearse a shot, he was over, let's say, a six iron in a tournament. And how he would say, he would imagine, he would visualize that shot, doing the feeling of it, the flight of the ball, and he said he would visualize it right down to the ball, landing on the green, taking the first hop or the second hop, spinning back or whatever it was, and he wouldn't swing the club until he had absolutely seen that, that mm. visualized that shot. And, of course, maybe at his level, <laughs> you could do that, right. you know? But uh, now that's really the opposite of what we're trying to say, sort of. Right. It's, he's really sort of controlling, and I'm or trying to control it. I'd be really interested to know how many times he actually hit that shot that he imagined. And I bet, I bet he hit it pretty frequently. Yeah. But I'm not <laughs> sure exactly what that mechanism is. I mean, my swing cannot produce any sort of a shot. So uh, I can, couldn't do that. One thing I bet, if I had to yeah, place a bet, Stephen, the difference of you probably writing today than maybe 30 years ago is the pain is still there. It's still uncomfortable. The doubt still comes in. You still don't have the answers. But I bet the amount of time it takes you to ease in to the discomfort, reset, remind yourself that I haven't quite found the answer yet, but I'll keep plugging away because I know it'll come. I think what you've probably gotten to is you have a certain level of comfort that gets you through the discomfort because you know you'll always get through it. Where a lot of people that call into this show that follow us, they have the oh shit moments, and then that spirals six holes. Our job and what we're trying to do is help people go from a six hole spiral to a thirty second spiral. Ah, right. Yeah, that's that's very insightful, Evan. That's exactly true for yeah. me, for my experience. You really hit the nail on the head. That's that, great. Uh, yeah, it wouldn't it, knock me out for two weeks. Yeah, You know, it would only knock me out for 10 seconds. <laughs> really learn to sort of forgive myself as a writer mm. and not be hard on myself at all. You know, when it doesn't work, I just sort of immediately blow that off and just get back and try again. That's also really important when playing golf. Um, but I, I guess with Jack and, you know, over the six iron, he's trying to make purposeful practice motions, right? Whether that's his practice swings or his mental thoughts so he can have familiarity. Right. And then that's like, it's a guy shooting a free throw, right? You do the same spins, you do the same dribbles, you do this to feel it and then just trust it. Right. So I guess that's it. I think you, you, you said it very well, Matt. Yeah. Cursing a positive thing and, and hoping that, that, that when you actually try to execute it, it does exactly that. A free throw that you, I'm sure you, that, uh, Steph Curry rehearses that sound of the swish, right? That he doesn't. Right. There's no. He doesn't hit the rim. It just. He doesn't hit even a, a corner of the of the net. He hits it right in the bottom, and it does. Of course, there's no yeah. substitute for work and for practice and for doing it over and over and over. Right, Stephen. I'm curious what the process for you was 
when the movie got made for Legend of Bagger Vance? How involved were you? What was the experience <laughs> like seeing it on screen? Well, the first thing was I got fired immediately. Really? Um, which is very common in Hollywood. Anytime you have an original writer, like the writer of a book that then is going to be adapted, or the writer of an original screenplay, as soon as a director comes on board and the director is the captain of the ship, first thing a director does is fire the writer. And the Just reason the is that it's becoming, <laughs> it's now the director's movie, right? And he doesn't want some pain in the ass writer looking over his shoulder saying, you know, I didn't really see that scene that way. You know, they want, it's, it's there. And that's legitimate. So hmm. I, got, I got fired uh, right away. In fact, I'll, I'll tell you the sort of the longer story. I think this might have been in The Authentic Swing, in my book, The Authentic Swing. The producer of the movie was a wonderful guy named Jake Eberts, who won, I think, like four Academy Awards for Best Picture, like for um, Gandhi, Chariots of Fire, uh, and a couple of, a couple of uh, Dances with Wolves. And he's, he was a wonderful Great guy. And movies. the phone rang here in my house right after the book was optioned. And he said, hi, it's Jake. And I hardly knew him. And he, in, in a very sort of awkward way, he says, I hate to tell you this, but Bob, meaning Robert Redford, wants another writer, and I'm going to have to let you go. And uh, so I said to Jake, I said, thank you so much for telling. This is the first time I've ever been fired where somebody actually told me. And I didn't have to, like, read about it in the paper, which is usually the way you find out you've been fired. So, yeah, so I was fired immediately, and uh, they just made the movie. And I was uh, permitted to come appear on the set for one day. And, uh, and that was my total involvement with the movie. Did that give you a little bit of a bitter taste? Uh, yes and no. I sort of, un I understand the business. I understood mm -hmm. the business. If yeah. I had been Robert Redford, I'd have fired me too. I'd have fired any writer too. Um, so, uh, it was a little bit of a bitter taste, but it was mainly my sort of disappointment with the movie. Mm. Um, yeah. But, uh, which I was quite disappointed with it. Um, but I'm sure every writer is disappointed with every adaptation, unless it's uh, To Kill a Mockingbird or something like that, where they really got it perfect. Right. I really wasn't involved with the movie at all. The only reason why I'm curious is, I, I mean, every book that a writer writes or can get published is important to them. Very important. That's, but it's, the Legend of Bagger Vance is about such just heavier topics and spiritual meanings, and there's just so much there, and it just it, it cuts deep in more ways than one, I think. You know, so it's just a very interesting experience for you to write such a book that meant so much to you, one of your first books, and then kind of, my first book. <laughs> you know, yeah, you know, that's when got you're really your first book to get published, yeah, and then yeah. the movie comes out great, but it's not what you necessarily thought it would be. Yeah, but I mean, I had been working as a screenwriter for about 10 years when that, so I'd had other scripts that I'd written or co-written come out and almost always they're so wildly different from what you envisioned that you sort of learn this is just the game, you know? Mm -hmm. It's yeah. not, you're not going to see what you, it, really the bottom line for a writer, screenwriter, is if you want it your own way, become a director and direct it yourself. And yeah. if you're not, then you have no right to complain about anything at all. Yeah, I'm surprised exactly. you weren't asked to adapt it because you had done that. You had been a screenwriter 
previously to writing the book. So what a great combination to adapt your own book for the screen. Then again, Evan, it's like <laughs> if you're the director, if we're Robert Redford and we want when we have our own vision of what this thing is going to be, we want to control that vision. Yeah. So we want to, to to bring a writer on that we feel comfortable with, that we can work with. We don't want again a pain in the ass writer yeah. that has credibility because it's their book. Right? You can't just blow them off. But then so the if it's if it's the writer's book, he's going to want to duplicate the book. Mm. And a director might say, "No, no, no, I don't want to do that. We're going to have to cut half this book. We're going to have to focus on this part and not that part." Right. So I don't blame anybody for doing it that way, and that's the way it is in every in every uh, every movie. Just about that's an adaptation. It's yeah. a director's medium, and they take over and they get it the way they want it. Steve, you mentioned control. So you had said once we saw this. What we can't control is our self motivation, our self discipline, our self validation, and our self reinforcement. Could you maybe dive into the last two regarding our self discipline and our self validation, and what that really means. Uh, very definitely coming down to sort of the concept of the authentic swing or the authentic self. You know, that the only um, criteria you're going to apply to an exercise, to what, whether it's a golf swing or whatever it is, is your own criteria. You're not going to try to swing like Freddie Couples. You're not going to judge yourself if you don't hit the ball as far as Tiger Woods. The only thing you can do is, is, is motivate, find your own motivation. Why am I doing this? Right? What do I hope to achieve? Self-motivation. Your own self-discipline. Here's how I'm going to achieve that. I'm going to practice. I'm going to you know, put in, you know, I'm going to work on my fitness. I'm going to work on my flexibility. I'm going to da, 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 da. And self-validation, self-reinforcement is judging your own self by your own criteria not somebody else's and your criteria yeah. might be harder on yourself than than a, a pro that you were working with might be or might be easier on yourself but certainly as a writer or any artist you have to absolutely do that if you're going to deliver your own vision or what's coming what your gift what your muse is giving to you mm. you can't do it for somebody else you know mm. to please somebody else well it's yeah. interesting Stephen, I was thinking about Gates of Fire, your book after Bagger Vance, who's been one of your most popular books. And I was thinking, it actually kind of reminds me of, you know, you had Bagger Vance, your first published book after 27, 28 years, right, of, of working for You've it. You've really done your research here. Yeah. <laughs> I appreciate and, that. <laughs> and Gates of Fire, you've done it, right? So now... Doing it again, it's almost like a hole after a birdie or the round after your best round. So I'm curious, with raised expectations, how did you manage writing? I think there's probably going to be a lot of parallels for people. Writing Gates of Fire, a very different book. But you followed your intuition and you wrote Gates of Fire, one of your most popular books. What, how was that for you to manage that? Ah, it's another great question, Evan. Um, in both cases, Legend of Bagger Vance and Gates of Fire, as I was working on them, I thought no one in the world is going to be interested in either of these stories except me. Mm. You know, 
Who's going to care about a mystical golf story based on the Bhagavad Gita? That is like the most obscure, <laughs> dumbest idea I've ever heard. And the same thing with Gates of Fire, which was about the Battle of Thermopylae, the, the 300 Spartans. I thought, here's a battle from 2,500 years ago that nobody's ever heard of. It wasn't, there were no Americans involved. They can't spell it. They can't pronounce it. And nobody's going to care about this but me. But I was wrong in both cases. And in both cases, I was so seized by the story and by the idea that I didn't care if nobody, you know, mm. I was amazed in both cases that they books found an audience, really amazed. Mm. I just didn't think they would. Um, so I was just sort of following my own star, you know, and I don't care, you know, what happens. I mean, I hope for the best, but I never really thought it would be so. And I definitely didn't feel any sense after Bagger Vance that I had to follow up with something good. I was just looking for anything that I cared about, that I loved enough that I wanted to dedicate two or three years to doing it. Well, that kind of goes along with what you told Oprah. You told Oprah, put your ass where your heart is, meaning, uh-huh. you know, people want to write, sit in front of a blank page. If people want to paint, sit in front of an easel. And I think that's actually a really good lesson for golfers because you hear like a lot of aspiring writers, I want to write, I want to write, but they're not actually doing it every day. Same thing with golf. People say they want to be a scratch player, but they don't practice. They don't work on their mindset. They're not actively learning after their mistakes. They just hope to play better, but that's not how growth works. So I think that's a big part of what you're about. I think a lot of golfers can take that too. Yeah, I think... Even personally speaking, you know, Matt, you asked me earlier, you know, about what my golf is like today. And I'd say that, uh, you know, I I only play very rarely. And part of the reason is that I know if you're going to play golf well, you basically have to turn pro. You know, you have to dedicate yourself on every level to fitness, to flexibility, to strength, and then to working with somebody really good that can get, you know, pro. I mean, that can really get, get you to your authentic swing. and Plus all the mental stuff that we're talking about here, you know, you, it's, it's a full-time commitment. And unless you're going to do that, you're just going to be a weekend type of golfer, which is what I am, you know, or even yeah. less, but that's sort of why I don't play more because I know if I want to play the way I really want to play, I got to, you know, there's no substitute for full out commitment. And I just don't, you know, don't have the money. <laughs> I don't have the, you know, the, the, the time to do that if I'm going to keep yeah. being a writer. Right. See, one other thing I just wanted to say, it's so fascinating to talk with you because your life, when you're looking for that next story or that next novel, you're trying to be inspired. Yes. Right. You're looking, you're looking for inspiration. I think for everybody listening, that will listen to this episode, trying to find inspiration, like that can be a lot of fun. That can be very gratifying. That can be, you can learn a lot about yourself, but it's a, just a great way to be. Because it gets back to the journey, but it's very positive. And, I, and just seeing it through a writer's lens, how you go about I'm your day to day. You guys, when you started the par train, must have felt the same way, right? Suddenly, yeah. or however, this idea came, mm-hmm. right? And I'm sure yeah. you had a lot of resistance to it. You know, this is a dumb idea. Who's going to have a couple of guys talking about golf and the mines? Yeah. You know, how is that going to work? Right. You know? But, uh, you must have felt inspired. You must have felt seized by it and pulled by it. And you must have said at some point, we don't care if it doesn't succeed. We want to do it anyway. You know? Yeah. Am I right? Absolutely. Yeah. 
Yeah. And what and another thing that building on Matt's point, Stephen, is I think you're one of the best examples of following your muse no matter what. So going from Legend of Bagger Vance to Gates of Fire to War of Art to Turning Pro back to you know your latest book, A Man at Arms. You're you didn't put yourself in a box, right? You write what you want when you want based on the inspiration. And I think a lot of people, you know, I go through that a lot. I feel like, oh, maybe this isn't enough golf focus. Maybe people won't like it, you know, but then I remind myself, no, if, if I'm interested in it, if Matt's interested in it, we should talk about it. And we're honest about it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And this, the par train will probably evolve. I'm sure it will evolve, you know, into God knows what, you know, at some yeah. point you may leave it behind or you may, you know, you guys may be building an entire golf complex somewhere, you know, yeah. in, in Carlsbad or who knows what <laughs> might come out of right. this, you know, it, it will evolve one way or another. And that's um, just the nature of kind of inspiration. I mean, I'm, I'm mm. a believer. I've said this a million times and I'm a believer in the muse. Mm -hmm. And I believe that, there's a higher level of reality and that that level leads us. And when you say like, if you're Bruce Springsteen and you're going from album to album to album, um, something is drawing him along, you know, some force. And I'm sure if, if you could interview him, he would agree with that. And he yeah. would say that he's, when he's finishing one album, he's looking for the next one. Or while he's working on one, he's looking, what's the next? And he's sort of asking the universe, asking the gods, what's the next thing that you want me to work on? Mm -hmm. and, and when he gets an answer, then he's seized by it. And I'm a huge fan of the boss. So I'd love, we'd love to talk to him about that. Because <laughs> there's such a correlation with the singer, singers and writers. You and guys should get Bruce. You, know, you don't <laughs> have to get only golfers, right? You can oh, get yeah. right. No, no we, yeah. we love all kinds of guests. So, so, Stephen, let me finish. We got two quick questions, then we'll get you out of here. I, I asked Tom Coyne. I don't know if you know him. Um, we had him on the show a few weeks ago who wrote a course called Ireland, a course called Scotland, all these different uh, golf books. Oh, I don't know that, but it sounds great. Yeah. <laughs> and um, I asked him advice at the end. I'm going to pull a Tim Ferriss. I'm going to ask you a piece of <laughs> advice to finish, and then I'll give you the floor to close with anything to reiterate or or give yourself a chance to say something you didn't have a chance to. Um, my question, and I've thought a lot about this over the years. Um, I definitely want to write something. I, I, I think I want to write a book for sure. And the thing that I struggle with before I decide to go full in, in that lane is how do you decide between getting your message, whatever you want to say across in a fictional story that has lessons versus a nonfiction how-to or self-help, because you've written both. And I, I go back and forth on, you know, it, it seems like it's almost the how-to might be an easier process, but ne neither is easy, but the story is more fun and sometimes can teach lessons in a more meaningful way. So I, I'd love to get your take on that, how ah, you choose. Another great question. Um, when... This is just from me, just my yeah. own experience. When I'm writing a story, a novel of some kind or whatever, I don't have any message that I'm trying to impart. Mm. In other words, there is no nonfiction version of that in Got my it. mind. 
what's pulling me is the story itself. Mm. You know, I think, oh, this is a great story. I can't wait for people to read this and the twists and turns and all that sort of stuff. A lot of people write these how-to self-help books. And if you were my brother or my son, I would say, don't do that. Mm. It's too easy. Yeah. You're letting yourself off the hook, I think. Do write a story, you know? Or if you have a choice between something that seems easy and something that seems really challenging that you're afraid of, do the challenging thing, whatever it is. And um, and it, it, it probably will fail. You know, the first time, it's like picking up a golf club and going out on a golf course, right? Yeah. But definitely, I can hear in your voice that you want to do it. So yeah. at some point, you are going to have to do it. Yeah. And not just once, but again and again, I think. <laughs> well, I appreciate that. For each novel that I've written, it's been a kind of a different hook. Like one, one book that I wrote was called Killing Rommel. And it was about uh, the, the North Africa campaign in World War II, the desert campaign. And what hooked me on that one was I was reading about uh, uh, British commandos. And I read about this commando group called the Long Range Desert Group. And they, these were guys that went behind the lines in the, de- in the desert, you know. And as soon as I heard that name, the Long Range Desert Group, I thought, that is the greatest name of an outfit I've ever heard. I wish I could have been uh, with them. And so who knows where that comes from, Matt? It's just something. And so I started to investigate it. Sure. And read read books. And then a whole story came out of that. Mm. But uh, so some little kernel seizes you or catches your interest. And you just go, oh, that's really great. I got to. And it's a lot of times it's really irrational. You know, (laughs) it seems crazy. Like, who's going to be interested in that? You know, but you're just hooked by it. Interesting. Yeah. Well, I'm going to give you last question for you, Stephen. Anything you want to reiterate as a closing for our listeners or something you didn't have a chance to say that you want to say? Uh, Let me ask you this. Uh, What what area do you think your listeners would like to hear something in? Granted, what we've just talked about. So our mission is to help frustrated golfers enjoy the ride again, because we believe if you can smile through bad golf, you can smile through anything. So they are looking for nuggets to help them, kind of like what we described with your writing, right? To go from a a two-week struggle to a 10-second struggle, Um, overcoming that resistance shot to shot, but also being less hard on yourself, all of that stuff I think is really helpful for them. All right, here's what I would say. Okay. <laughs> uh, and I say this about writing or any form of art as well. It's much, and everybody knows this, it's much harder than you think it is. Mm. And it requires anything we're talking about, golf, anything, right? Requires a commitment, a really deep commitment. And it's like there are, there are golfing gods just like there are muses and writing gods and everything else, and they're watching us, and they're looking down on us, and they're judging us, not by how much native talent we bring, but by how committed we are, and how dedicated, how much we love it, you know? And if we love it enough, and we're willing to to, uh, make the commitment, and to make the sacrifice that you have to make, then these golfing gods will smile on us, you know? 
And yeah. like I say, one of the reasons I don't play very much anymore because I know the way I go about it really pisses off the golfing gods <laughs> and they have no interest in me whatsoever. Um, but if I were going to do it, I would go full tilt, you know? And yep. um, it takes that commitment, you know? Yeah. One of my, my books after the War of Art is called Turning Pro. And yep. it talks about turning pro as a, as a writer, about making that mental switch where you're not an amateur anymore. You're not just dabbling. You're in it, you know, with both feet. And it's the same thing with golf, too. You know, you have to, even though you're not a pro, you're not playing for money, you have to think of yourself as a pro. Mm -hmm. and, and when one does that, the golfing gods will smile. Love that. That's well, great. This was great, Stephen. This was a real thrill for us. Um, yeah. If you guys aren't following Stephen, I think stephenpressfield.com is a great place to find all of your books. You've got a great blog as well if people want little nuggets. A Man I'm at Arms Instagram is your new book. Too. said I'm on Instagram too. You can He's on Instagram, Instagram at Stephen underscore Pressfield. Is your latest book, A Man at Arms, Gates of Fire, War of Art. I mean, the list goes on and on. So definitely check them out. Stephen, thank you so much. This yeah. was great. Hey, That's thank a pleasure. You guys for the great preparation. I think uh, this has been one of the most fun podcasts I've done. And I'm, I'm very happy to come back again if you ever want me to. We'd love that. And, uh, oh, that would be great. You guys, are going, you guys are going places. You're on the right track. And, uh, you know, whatever you're doing, keep doing it. I appreciate Thanks, that. Thanks, Stephen. Thanks, Stephen. All right. See you next time.